Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me again. In today's episode, we have Dr. Mike. Uh, Dr. Mike is tell from RP Strength. He joins me again as we uh, talk about politics, his upcoming involvement with this crazy COVID vaccination experimentations, all in the name of science, and how the media is punking y'all. No, but seriously, we talk a bit about uh, politics at the start, but then go into uh, training talk about volume guidelines for strength versus, versus muscular development. Uh, we'll talk about uh, where is a good place to start with your set numbers per session, per week, and then how to progress those for strength and for hypertrophy. We'll talk about other things like whether soreness equals progress. Do we need soreness? Do we need to feel sore all the time? And how can we increase our MRV, our maximum recoverable volume? Uh, he talks about some recommendations for people who lift, but also participate in other sports like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or wrestling or boxing or other sports where there are a lot of endurance factors. And uh, we uh, talk about how much work we can do to maintain any gains in strength and endurance during downtime. So when we need to go on a holiday or when we get busy, with work or studies, how much work can we do to maintain what we've already worked for and not lose it? And you'll be surprised with the answer. Guys, this episode is so jam-packed, it's awesome. I can't fit it all in the details here. Just click that play button and uh, keep listening and uh, you'll see what it's all about. Make sure you follow Dr. Mike on Instagram and uh, his, his uh IG handles in the description, and of course, Renaissance Periodization, uh, whose Instagram handle is also in the description. And don't forget to share this episode. I want you to share this episode with two of your friends who you feel would most benefit from it. And if you liked it, don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to rate the podcast. Enjoy. Dr. Mike, how you going, mate? Welcome to the show. Good, good. Uh, it's good to be back, man. It's a long time no talk. Yeah, it's been ages. Uh, you've been up to, you've been doing a fair bit since uh, since all that. Probably the the latest and and probably the coolest thing you you uh, you're doing is the um, you you volunteered for the COVID research. What's that yeah. about? What what's, what happens with that? Well, so they say Bill Gates is the one that made COVID nineteen. It's going to give you a microchip, and I want a microchip. I'm tired of walking around as not a robot. And uh, Bill Gates, I trust him one hundred percent. I want the chip. Uh, but on a serious note, you know, COVID-19 is kind of a real thing. You know, it's not uh, as bad as some crazy people say. It's not the end of the world. Uh, it, it's kind of like the flu if no one was immune to the flu and it ran through for the first time ever. Like, that's really it, you know. And uh, yeah. people forget how bad the flu is. It kills tons of people. And because we have pretty decent herd immunity built up, it's not that big of a deal. But, you know, if you don't have herd immunity built up, this stuff runs through really, really harshly. So so the reality is that it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, and the best hope for resolution of almost anything is through science and uh, science has vaccines and vaccines have literally ended uh, almost every pandemic that's ever been. And they're almost certainly going to end this one. And I figure that, uh, you know, I have a decently sized social media platform and uh, sometimes I like to say things on it that get me in trouble. And sometimes I like to say things on it that uh, maybe I think are a good idea. And I think if you're real serious about science and uh, you're ostensibly want to help other people, then volunteering for a vaccine uh, trial is a real good idea. Um, can you still hear me? Am I coming through okay? Yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. 
Okay. And uh, also, there's a selfish reason there. Like, I want the first person, I want to be the first person who gets the vaccine or not, the, you know, early. So I can, like, you know, because it'll probably work. Um, you know, and if it doesn't work, I'm, I'm healthy and strong and I can take it. And if it does work and I happen to get the vaccine, sweet, I'm fucking vaccinated, you know, vaccinated against everything else. I might as well be vaccinated against this. Do you get a lot of people after, you know, having, having told uh, everybody that you're getting it, do, do you get a lot of people saying, well, well, that's not maybe such a good idea because heaps of really uh, fit people and healthy people have gotten it and, and they've died. Uh, have people sort of come back at you with that? Have died from the vaccine? No, no, from from the actual thing, but uh, with the vaccine. Yeah. Oh, so you exposed. mean the challenge, the challenge trials? So, so there's two things I signed up for. One is challenge trials, which is they give you the vaccine and then they give you COVID nineteen. That hasn't happened mm. yet, but I'm signed up for it. The other one is uh, just right. vaccine research generally in the population where they give you the vaccine, which doesn't make you sick. It makes you about as sick as uh, your average like uh, steroid shot or something. Which is to say, like you know what I'm saying? It's not some shit I'm not used to. You feel me? But. Um, you know, it's like that. And then, you know, you know, it's not it's not the virus itself. So the, can is there a chance that the vaccine can cause harm? Yeah. Like there's been test vaccines done on animals where the vaccine makes it uh, more likely that you'll catch the disease rather than last. That's happened every, every uh, now and again. It's likely that also also possible that the vaccine won't work at all or ha- offer some very marginal uh, benefit. But uh, you know what? Like when I have like when there's a virus that's killed like you know, 600,000 people across the world already in, in, in short order. Um, and some of the stuff, ways you can get sick from it are pretty mysterious and they can't really do anything for you. And then the alternative is to get a vaccine that's so far science's best answer as to what's probably going to work. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to take, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a shot at the vaccine. I'm not going to run this by chance, you know, like, no thanks. And young, fit, healthy people can be killed by COVID-19. It's highly unlikely, but it's much less likely they'll be killed by a vaccine. So, you know, like, Polio straight up makes people, you know, uh, immobile. Vaccines don't make people immobile. You know what I mean? Like uh, the polio vaccine ended polio, mumps, rubella, measles, tons of other diseases. There's just, like there's a bunch of disease we don't have in the West. You know, Australia included. It's just we don't have. Like I've been to um, for work um, to India, and you wouldn't know how many fucking shots you have to take to go to a place like that and yeah. i'm like oh my god how the fuck do they still have all these diseases well their vaccination programs are not integrated and they're not you know like they're just still these diseases around i prefer to live in a world with no diseases so vaccine against covid19 is one way forward as a matter of fact you know on another note i'm very really super tired of lockdowns and restrictions and wearing a stupid yeah. fucking mask which i wear everywhere because it's a good idea but i'm not gonna like it and i don't think we should be laying down for this thing and being like we'll just just huddle together and wait for it to i don't even know i think some people on the political left are just like we just got to quarantine like for how long they're like, as long as it takes like for what they're like for this thing to go away like how the hell is it going to go away in its own mm. it just takes like one or two people to still have it and they spread it to everyone else yeah uh, unless you're like an island nation like new zealand when you can just restrict immigration and tourism for forever which by the way good luck to new zealand's tourism industry until the vaccine shows up because what the hell's yeah. going over there nobody right mm. so and i want to go to australia and hang out with all my 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 uh my cunts and my mates and everyone in between <laughs> i can't do that shit until there's a vaccine really so i'm i'm excited for this thing to get going yeah it's, it's the same thing here like um people are just living in fear as soon as you get 30 40 cases pop up uh, people are like uh, you know the next uh, the next lockdown is is supposed to come or you know we should lock down again and and i'm like 
what are you going to do every time 30 cases pop up, you're going to lock down um, for how long? How long is that going to go for? What's that going to do to the economy? What's that going to do to people's lives, mental health, and so on and so forth? Um, how is the state over there in, in America? I mean, the news here makes it look like basically the whole country is, is on fire. And so the, um, we got you one, we got, I got one up on you. The news here makes it look like it's even more on fire. <laughs> um, the news in is characteristically pessimistic to an incredible extent and actually increasingly more so over the last several decades, um, especially with clickbait style news. Uh, they have every incentive yeah. to make things look bad. So in the United States, almost no one has COVID-19. Um, it's very rare. Um, I don't know anyone personally that's gotten it. I know like one person once removed that's gotten it. What you looking at me for, honey? My wife is t- telling me that's not true. Well, I mean, that's true. <laughs> it's true for me, but you're a doctor, so you know yeah. some COVID people. So see, I know people once removed. And, uh, but you know, some of the people and, and all, everyone I know once removed that's, that's had it is like, it was just like an annoying flu and then it went away. Uh, but I know that there's 150,000 people have died so far and it sounds like a crazy number, except in the United States, it's just like some infinitesimally small fraction of the population. So almost no one knows anyone that's dying. But the thing is, is that with a spreading infection, it's easy to look at initially small numbers and be like, ah, that's nothing. But then they balloon up and then it's crazy because the infection rate is really skyrocketing. The sort of good-ish silver lining news to that is that the way more people are getting infected and not dying now than at the start of the pandemic, and most pandemics, like most viruses, become less lethal over time for a variety of reasons. So right now the infection fatality rate is like roughly 0.6.7, something like that. Uh, For the flu to put it in perspective is like 0.15, right? So it's like five times more more deadly than the flu, and a conservative estimate. Other estimates would have it even more deadly. But like that was as of like one or two months ago. And now in the United States, there's way, way more cases, but mm, just a, a maybe double the number of people are dying, even though there's like six times more cases than there was before. So, and there's a little bit of a lag time in death, but the, the fatalities almost certainly won't come up to what they were before in like April and stuff like that. So what ends up happening is in September, you're going to see studies come out that say the new infection fatality rate across the world is actually like maybe 0.3 or 0.2. That's getting close to the flu, right? And it's it's going to be difficult to get people to like put on masks and social distance when they're like, really, we're doing this for the flu. And so I think now it's good for people to do this. And, you know, I think, um, so in the United States, like most people just go about their daily lives. A lot more people work from home, but all the normal businesses are open uh, all the businesses that are open, like as a bit of change, they're more socially distanced. Restaurants only seat every other table or have fewer tables. The people that do your nails, do your hair, they have the masks on at all times. When we go to the gym, we like often wear a mask. It's not mandatory, but it's like, you know, I do it just because I don't want to be a piece of shit that gives anyone COVID-19. Um, and so, yeah, it's just mostly normal, but like there's, uh, it's very region specific. So in the rural areas, it gets almost nothing and almost no one has any cases and people don't even wear masks in the large metro areas. There's tons of cases and people are super locked down. Like New York city is like super intense. Uh, basically like a lot of stuff has, has really slowed down to a halt yeah. there. Yeah. It's full on over there. Uh, is it, is that one of the hardest hit cities out of all of them? So far it's the hardest hit. Yeah. But there's other cities that are going to be vying for that title as the thing spreads more and more. Yeah, that's just because of the, just the sheer density of people there, right? For sure. I mean, Manhattan, Maybe a just couple of other people factors, on top of people. Yeah. 
people on top of people. And also they got exposed to a nasty stream first. And also they did the something with their nursing homes. They, in retrospect, shouldn't have done. They put COVID-19 sick people into nursing homes, uh, which you need to get them out because nursing homes are just like essentially like everyone there is super high risk. So it's uh, it's a thing, but it's not the end of the world. And some people act like it is. And then we have mm. a share of conspiracy theorists that say COVID-19 isn't. Bill Gates designed it or the government. It's a power grab. I think a lot of the power grab stuff and people don't understand that governments will try to grab power no matter what, even when they don't cause the thing. Like no one had to invent COVID-19 for the government to want more power. There's actually not a time when the government doesn't want more power. So when they say like it's a power grab, like, yes, it's also that, but it's also a real virus. You know, like, can you imagine like aliens from the moon start attacking us and the government's like, we need to unite and fight these aliens. And someone's like, it's a power grab, like no shit, but there's real aliens on the moon trying to kill us. (laughs) So let's deal with the government thing too, but let's also try to kill the aliens. So. Yeah, and uh, there's other ones about like population control, and uh, it just keeps going and going. Um, I mean, like conspiracy theories are real nasty because uh, I, I, I've recently started. Usually, I'll on Facebook just to practice my argument uh, argumentation skills. I'll engage progressives that think everyone should be wearing a mask for the rest of their lives and no one should ever be able to hug again because uh, they tend to be fairly intelligent and try to have reasons for things that they say, and I'll sort of pick at them and try to be nice about it. And, and get somewhere. But recently I've started engaging the more conservative elements of like complete denial of COVID-19 or conspiracy theorists. And those folks are tough to get any headway on because they just don't have a respect for discourse whatsoever or for information. Like you tell them like, hey, here are the stats. And they're like, I don't believe these stats. And you're like, mm, right on. So what stats do you believe? And they just pull up another study they like. And I'm like, so why do you believe this one and not that one? They're like, because follow the money. And I'm like, that doesn't even mean anything. You have no idea. You've never traced the money anywhere. You have not done any kind of like investigational finance at all. Like you have no idea what you're saying. And conspiracy theorists are are just like really, it's just really gnarly, man. I had uh, I've I've talked to a few of them about COVID and a couple other things lately, and it's it's tough to get at them because eventually they just stop responding because you, you you at some point they realize that they're just making this stuff up in their heads. They're like, well, Bill Gates is doing us. I'm like, how do you know? They're like, here's this. Uh, link to this article. And I'm like, this article doesn't say that. It just insinuates it like you are. So where's the evidence? And they're like, well, do you really need evidence? It's right in front of you. I'm like, well, it's, I'm pretty smart. And it's clearly just not right in front of me. I don't get it. Can you, I'd love to be on your side. Can you explain it? And they should just stop responding because they're just pretending. And it's kind of nuts, man. Like usually conspiracy theorists are fun, but like people are dying and shit, man. 150,000 dead people. You know what I'm saying? If my relatives are off, I was sick from COVID-19 and I had conspiracy theorists tell me it wasn't a real virus or some shit. I'd be fucking violent. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you, you moved, you moved now to the, to the West coast, right? From the East coast. You could call it the West coast. It's the desert, Las Vegas, Nevada. It's where, when anyone from Australia comes to visit the United States, they always go to three places, New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, yeah. Las Vegas, I is can the attest to casinos. That. And the prostitutes, because you guys are a bunch of lewd motherfuckers who just want to pay for sex. And that's what Las Vegas is great for. The thing is, the the irony is it's illegal there, but it's legal here. I know. It's it's, yeah. it's hilarious. It's illegal. So we get disappointed when, we, when we're over there. Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. This is bullshit. Uh, Vegas is a ghost town, huh? Uh you know what? I have no reference frame because every time I've been to Vegas before, which is like dozens of times, I'm only on the strip. Do you know what the strip is? It's like, yeah, it's the one with all the hotels. It's the one street with all the hotels and shit. Yeah, the thing yeah. is, Vegas is enormous and it's way bigger than the strip. And now we live like 10 miles away from the strip in like a sleepy suburb. And 
it's nice. It's super nice. There's palm trees everywhere, little lizards crawling on the ground. It's mate, it's 45 fucking degrees every day, which is insane. Like That's crazy. But it's dry heat, which my wife won a bet against me. I was telling her dry heat, wet heat doesn't matter. It sucks. She won the bet because dry heat is okay. If I wear a hat and I'm out of the sun, it's really not that bad. And also, you don't physically sweat. Have you ever been to Indonesia or Thailand? Yeah, yeah. It's crazy over there, man. The, the, you feel like you're swimming as you're just walking down the street. 100%. So it's completely the opposite. Like when you're outside, you don't feel like you're sweating. You just have to stay on top of your hydration and like think, figure out like, okay, am I dying in the sun or not? But otherwise, it's not It's not a huge deal. Like it's not discomforting. It's just like, oh, it's really warm. It's the sun. It's kind of like opening up your oven when you're cooking something. It's like, yeah. you're like, well, it's kind of pleasant. You know, yeah. um, when you're in Thailand or Indonesia or whatever, I've been to Thailand a few times. Like you get out of the airport, you're like, what the fuck? Like I could literally just swim to my hotel through this shit. And that's like, I'm never going to live in that shit. Yeah, that, that, that one's going to, that's easier to live in. Um, like when it's just dry heat and... <laughs> And I assume, like, because, you know, every time I go to Vegas, it's always nice weather. It's always sunny skies and and, uh, it doesn't really rain there. So it never rains. That's the other plus side. 300 300 days of sun per year. That's just like baffling. I grew up in Russia, which had like zero days of sun, never. Yeah. (laughs) This is constantly the opposite, the exact opposite, actually. Yeah. Over there. Uh, what's going on with your with your training and and I mean you're absolutely s- smashing training as usual. But uh, what are, the, are you training for? Any any comps? Anything like that? Uh, thanks for asking. So I am currently in a second phase of an initial. So I did an initial fat loss diet where I got relatively lean and then I maintained for about a month, uh, a month and a half, and then I just started. I'm a month into phase two, and I'm going to be dieting. Like I have up to twenty weeks to diet if I need to. Um, total, I'm just going to diet until I get really lean. And unless I get COVID or unless I hurt myself, I'm just going to diet until I figure this shit out. Um, I finally have a good plan together as far as nutrition and supplementation and everything like that. Know what works, know what doesn't, uh, know how to keep all the variables constant. And I'm like doing super well. So I'm actually getting uh, pretty, I'm actually pretty lean right now, but I'm getting leaner and leaner and leaner uh, slowly. And so my new, my, my thing now is like, I'm just going to do this slow and get as lean as I need to. And then in, insofar as I get lean, I'm going to pick a show that's kind of good too. Cause COVID-19 knocked the whole show schedule off for bodybuilding to mm. where like, it's not so clear that shows are on or off. Some are on, some are off, some are canceled. And some of the TBD dates they've announced are like, you know, they're not, you're not hundred percent sure if they're really going to happen. So what I'm just doing is I'm targeting potentially shows in like November, December, um, which by then, like, if I'm not lean, for the love of God, I'm just going to quit. I mean, I'm just kidding. I'm just going to keep trying to get lean. But uh, I should be in some decent shape then. So bodybuilding is going well. And then I'm in Vegas now. So my jiu-jitsu coach, Josh Bogle, he's in Philadelphia. But um, I have him contracted out as, uh, like, an online coach, basically. So I talk to him on the phone. We share texts and videos and stuff, um, mostly dick pics. But uh, some jiu-jitsu discussions also occur. So I, I went to a gym here in Las Vegas called Studio 76. Uh, really, really tough guys there. And they let me just come in to roll uh, after class. So I coordinate my technical work with Josh. And then I go practice my techniques during live rolls when I go to class. So I do jiu-jitsu like, oh, four times a week. And I train with Jared Feather. He lives uh, with us and he's my training partner. We train with weights 10 times a week. So wow. yeah, all I do is work and train. And then when I'm not working in training, I just sit in the Vegas sun and stare into the sun so it can finally blind me because I'm directly tired. into the sun. Yeah. 
like your president when he directly stared into uh, this solar eclipse and it was had to get told by the secret service not to do that because it's not good for your eyes he's uh he knows better than the secret service because he knows better than all of us so exactly just yeah i thought you he knew that something we don't he's know. the king of the world <laughs> that guy he is a source of comic relief for us can i you're welcome say? it's fantastic <laughs> He is a living meme. He really is. Well, like he, he likes is. to be a living meme because he like Twitter is his is like, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword. I guess like the iPhone is mightier than both of those because goddamn, like that's just what he uh it's what he likes to do. He's it, it, you can never tell if he's in on the joke or not. Like uh he's sort of playing so around, maybe he isn't. Yeah, who knows. It's just, you know, just has the world's largest nuclear arsenal on one button pass away. <laughs> no big deal. Jurgen's going to win again. Uh, do I reckon he's going to win? If I was a betting, a betting man, uh, yes, yes, I would bet that he's going to win. Do I, do I want him to win? Absolutely not. Uh, is he going to win? Almost certainly. Um, maybe not almost certainly. It's a bit, bit probabilistically, I would say yes, for a couple of reasons. One, if the vaccines arrive and start to really take a good chop at COVID-19, he can uh, narrative it as a victory. And then a lot of people can't be as upset at him as they would have wanted. Uh, another one is the uh, opposing party here, the Democrats, uh, for now seem to be on this like social justice revolution thing where they have run out of actual problems and have just now started to do essentially just another form of racism and class warfare. And they're just trying to get people against each other. And I think a lot of people just don't really like that. Um, and it's one of those real extreme type of things where uh, they just sort of don't have a really good alternative for most average folks to vote for them. Uh, other than like, hey, did you know you were secretly racist and no matter what you can do, you're still racist and you have a history of oppression even though you were born in another country and just because of the color of your skin. And it's like, holy shit, like you guys really believe that? And they're like, yes. Now, of course, mainstream, that's not their view, but there's enough of those folks on that side and enough, at least enough of the presidential candidates talking about those things as being good that it's alienating a lot of people. And so Trump's insanity alienates the fuck out of a lot of people. But it seems like right now the left in the United States is like, ah, you can be insane, Trump? Watch this, motherfucker. Hold my beer. We can do the same shit except from the other angle. And there's not really anyone in the middle being like, hey, like, why don't we like, you know, all get along well together and promote justice and have a pretty decent economy, but also do not have to do insane things. Uh, and no one's like step forward like that. Joe Biden might be that person. He might be a more moderate voice. And if Trump keeps being really crazy, maybe he'll win. But right now we've not heard much from the left other than kind of insane things that are like, you know, um, you know, things that just don't make a whole lot of sense to most people they can't relate to. And then, and then it's two extremes. And then they, you know, what is it? The, you know, if the economy is on its way back up, which it probably will be, um, the strong economy favors the incumbent candidate. And that's it. And a lot of people just won't go vote if everything's kind of returning to normal by November or, or things seem to be on the up and up. It's going to kind of be like, wow, like, why the hell am I going to rock the boat? And that's all it takes. So. Yeah, it's true. They sort of, they don't want to, yeah, they wouldn't want to change anything. And I, I reckon he's, he's doing his absolute best to either get a vaccine or fake a vaccine to to secure that tough. position. <laughs> yeah, uh, Bill Gates. It's already no. a fake vaccine. I mean, it's a fake, it's a fake <laughs> virus anyway. Oh man, 
What's uh, what's happening with um, the training side of things? Let's talk about the training side of things. Everybody's probably listening to this. Like, shut the fuck up, you two talking about politics and shit. I tuned in for for training knowledge. Um, uh, what are some new um, developments with uh, probably your staple? I guess signature discovery, the uh, volume landmarks and stuff like that. Any any updates with that? I I, I heard um, recently there was a not heard I saw uh, recently there was a, a discussion between uh, you and Eric Helms in regards to um, increasing sets as a way to uh, increase volume, and there was some discussion back and forth about that. Take us through that. Take us through any new discoveries, discoveries and things like that. You've you've uh, come across that and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, Eric made a, a few points. And one of the good points he made was that, you know, uh, it's a U shaped curve for volume and hypertrophy. And you don't want to be on the other side of that curve for too long because you're basically doing double the work and getting the same small amount of hypertrophy that you could be from doing half the work. Um, and if you intentionally drive up sets on purpose, you could get to that point and, and sort of it would be bad to be there. Uh, my sort of reclarification of that is that that if you look at cross-sectional studies that seem to look like that but within a single mesocycles accumulation phase if you start significantly below the peak of the curve and there's good reasons to do that like if you just started at your average training volume you get so sore you wouldn't be able to come back to the gym so if you start a little shy of where you normally train or the average volume by the time you get to the higher volumes that risk going over the other end of that curve your cumulative fatigue is very, very high. And because in the method of training that I espouse, and I think makes the most sense, the RPE goes up with every week, basically, or every other week. It continues to go up through the accumulation phase, or the RIR goes down, that not only do you have incrementally more fatigue, but the sessions are incrementally more additive to fatigue than normal. So you have this exponential growth of fatigue. So instead of your volume progression and hypertrophy going like this, it goes like, uh, and then you go to hell. And it's really easy to find out when you've hit your MRV. What we're basically saying is when you reach the peak of your ability to do volume and benefit, your maximum recoverable volume is just not very far away, probably one or two weeks away. And we also have good literature suggesting that functional overreaching, training close to your limits or a little bit beyond them, and then backing off like with a deload promotes a really good amount of hypertrophy. And since you've worked up to that slowly, it's also not very dangerous. So in my view, that concern over ending up in the uh, doing too much work to justify the volume or to justify the growth, I don't think is a uh, very likely concern in people that are actively progressively trying to reduce the RIR, increase the RP, and adding sets with an auto-regulatory fashion. And no, I don't think that you should be adding sets like 10, one week, 12, then 14, and 16, and 18. You can do that, but I don't think it's the best way. I think you should add sets via auto-regulation. Basically, is your performance still improving yes okay that's a good check and then are you getting uh sore at all are you noticing any disruption at all and are you getting any pumps if you're not getting any pumps and you're training with a characteristically low volume and you're basically getting no soreness or hardly any soreness at all and your performance is improving we have every reason to believe that you would probably grow more by adding more sets like can you imagine telling someone like yeah man i grew a ton of muscle someone's like how are your workouts you're like total shit didn't get a pump didn't get sore, but I got huge. What the fuck? Like, that's not good. That doesn't happen. 
right? Yeah. So if you're getting great pumps and if you're getting sore and just barely healing for your next workout, don't add any sets because you don't need any more volume. That amount of volume is more than sufficient to do what you want to do. And then you definitely stop adding volume and take a deload when you're no longer making gains. If your performance isn't increasing and it starts to become stable week to week, and even if it stops being stable and starts falling off, uh, then you've beyond your MRV and then you definitely need to cut it off and deload. So I think when an auto-regulated progression starting from an easier sort of training, working up intelligently based on your body's feedback to harder and harder and harder, and then stopping when it's too hard, I think that's a pretty decent way to go about it. Eric, I think, likes to start a little bit more in the middle and climb only very slowly using load and reps. He was saying that at first. Nowadays, uh, he's more slightly saying it's okay to auto-regulate sets within a mesocycle, but you need to be conservative about it. And I think him and I maybe disagree a little bit on what it means to be conservative. I don't think he trusts the pump and the SORNA stuff as much as I do, but I think it has a lot of merit. And, um, I think it's worth considering. Uh, what's, a, what's a good place for people to start uh, in terms of set numbers? Uh, and I know you've done videos of this, by the way, people listen to this. Uh, I've known especially lately on the uh, RP Strength uh, YouTube page, you guys are doing heaps of, heaps of good stuff on that, so people should jump on that. But uh, yeah, what, what are some, some good landmarks, some good places to start with for a majority yeah. of people. So I have like a, a, an answer from the literature and our observations combined, uh, which we call like normative data, like what other people have been doing. And then I have an answer for auto-regulation based on how you can tell for yourself. So normative data is usually like somewhere between two and four sets per muscle group per session. And you know, you train two, four times per week, the same muscle group, that's where you start. So like, for example, like if you're starting with hamstring curls, it could make sense like you do anywhere between two and four sets of lying leg curls the first week that you do lying leg curls and then that's it you're done with hamstrings or two to four sets of you know um leg press or something or two to four sets of bench press or two to four sets of flies or something like that um that's where you start um and then slowly but surely you'll be able to do more and more as your body's work capacity goes up and your recovery ability goes up um and then you know on the other so you know you don't want to do something like okay for week one of a program I'm doing eight sets for chest in one session. Like that's kind of insane. You'll probably kind of get really fucking sore. And then what, what are you gonna do after that? So that's where you kind of start and you work up from there. And another way to figure out where to start is when during the workout, have you gotten like a decent pump, nothing crazy. And when in the workout, have you noticed that your muscles are fatigued and perturbed enough to notice that you did something? Like for example, like your pecs feel kind of, kind of like, you know, like, ooh, like ooh, they're tired. And, oh man, like flexing them feels a little weird. Like I better back off. You know that feeling you get when you do, and I'm sure you've done this spot 10 trillion times during your career, I sure have, you like um, are starting to feel your swag and you're like, ooh, I'm getting a good workout. And then you do like one or two extra sets on top of that and you know you're going to be sore for like a week and a half. You're like, fuck, I know it. Like I can't, you try to sit down on the toilet after legs and you're like, god damn it. Like I, I love being sore. It's great. It's progress. But like this is too much because I'm never going to heal for Thursday if it's Monday. And then what am I going to do Thursday? Especially for powerlifting, you're like, what the fuck am I going to do this coming week? Like my back is going to be super sore and I got to deadlift again. So you don't want to go there. That's just where you don't want to go in your first week. So you want to just, just a touch of a pump, just a touch of a little disruption of the muscles locally to say, okay, something happened. And then you check to see how long the soreness lasts. And usually you'll get very little sore. You'll heal by the next session. And then you'll do the next session maybe with a similar volume. And then during that next session, you may notice like, okay, I, I did three sets of bench, but you know, my pump, not as good as last time because it's not a new exercise anymore. So cocaine, okay, my pecs feel pretty good. So I'm going to do one more set. And then now you have a better pump and your pecs feel a little toasted. And you're like, okay, better back off. And so that was an extra set of bench that week. And then so on and so on and so on. 
at some point you're reaching, you know, somewhere between six to 10 sets per session per muscle group. And you just don't have to increase volume anymore from that because the progression and load and just the accumulated fatigue is more than enough to be like, holy shit, that's way more than, than what I need. And then after that, you can no longer get better at that level. Like you can't add load to the bar, reps start to fall off, you cut it off, you deload and repeat. So there's both, you know, the, the two to four sets is an average. Because some people can do like six sets of bicep curls and feel totally fine. Some people can do two sets of lying leg curls on the hamstring and be sore for a week and a half. So it really should be auto-regulated. A good example there is like exercises you haven't done in a while that are eccentrically loading, lunges. Have you ever done like no dumbbell or barbell lunges for like months? And then you do one set of lunges and your glutes instantly start cramping at the end of the set. Yeah. Like it's probably good to just stop with one set because you're going to create so much muscle damage that it's going to prevent you from growing to a large extent from that session anyway. So like if you stimulated, it's such a novel stimulus. It's a great muscle growth stimulus with minimum volume. And if you know if you do more volume, you're just going to interfere with that stimulus by causing too much damage. Why the fuck would you keep going? So I'm a big advocate of starting almost every hypertrophy program on the easier side. And then if it's too easy, you could always add more. Right. So I'm not necessarily in favor of like using volume as a cudgel to like just fucking more, more, more. I'm using volume first principle as conservative. And then after that, as your body opens up and lets is clearly allowing you to recover and do more, then you add more as needed to give yourself a challenge. Because um, some people say like, well, it should be only performance based. Okay. So why don't you just do one set per session? And hit, you'll hit PRs for weeks because you'll never accumulate any fatigue and you'll be technically much more proficient at the exercise. But we know that one set per session isn't nearly remotely optimal for hypertrophy. So there is a volume component there. And if you start below the average of what the average volume from the literature is for best growth, which is like roughly eight sets per session, if you start at five, almost always you're going to have to go up as your body adapts. And then you can stay, you know, five and then six and seven and eight. And you might go up to nine and you go nine, 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 and then you can't perform anymore, deload, and then go back down to four or five in the next muscle. Uh, so with regards to um, sets per muscle group per session, uh, how many um, – so the general consensus at the moment is uh, like six to eight tough sets per session per muscle group, Right. Um, is like pretty close that's, to optimal hypertrophy on average yeah. for the mesocycle, not every, yeah. single, every single session. Uh, and then, and then, uh, as per your recommendations, um, each muscle group should be worked anywhere between 10, 12 sets per week on the lower end, up to about 20, 22 sets per week on the on the higher end. Uh, it depends right? on the muscle group. It depends on the muscle group. So it's actually we have to bring frequency into the discussion. So on average, muscle groups can be worked. On average, and there are exceptions to this, and you can tailor your program differently, but two to four times per week on average. So if we're talking about the maximum adaptive volume is roughly eight sets per session, right? That you know, let's say maximum recovery volume after all that accumulated fatigue is like 10 sets per session. And I, I still haven't met many people who are relatively strong who can week after week do 10 working sets close to failure per session and recover like you know, I don't know. Do you know anyone like you can imagine six sets of leg press, no, 50 to 20 reps, and then four sets of high bar Jesus Christ. Like, so if you have that MRV is 10 uh, and you have two to four sets per session, well, that tells you your weekly MRV is between 20 and 40 sets. And you think, okay, 40 sets, you're at fucking behind. Well, sure as hell not doing that for hamstrings or quads in most people. But think of something like side delts. I mean, if you do six sets of lateral raises and four sets of upright rows on Monday, do you have to wait until Thursday to do that again? 
maybe not, especially if you're used to it. You can do it three times a week. You can do it four times a week. You recover just fine. And then so some muscle groups, smaller muscle groups, uh, side delts, rear delts, sometimes biceps for people, forearms, sometimes calves, um, they have maximum recovery volumes that are approaching, you know, for a week or two at the end of a mesocycle, close to 40 sets. And that's totally fine. Um, and other, other muscle groups seem to take more mechanical damage. They take longer to recover. They're larger. You know, who has a true MRV that's reasonably strong of 40 a week for the quads? Like, I haven't met that person yet, man. And, and it, sometimes people say they do, but they're really not going anywhere near failure that they're supposed to be. And then for hamstrings, my hamstring weekly hamstring volume is the most it ever goes to is like 12 to 14 sets per week. I mean, that's just insanity. That's way on the high end. A lot of my workouts are four sets of hamstrings per session twice a week. And anything more just gets me violently sore and I can't recover. So it, it runs the gamut. But another cool thing is that higher frequency training seems to promote more growth than lower frequency training. So you think, okay, my MRV can either be 20 or 40, depending if I choose two sessions a week or four sessions. How the fuck? Like, isn't that going to cause more growth? Well, yeah, the 40 sets, uh, you know, top end will cause more growth than 20 sets because more sessions cause more growth because there seems to be a cap to what your per session maximum adaptive volume is. Like, Doing eight sets a session grows more than two. Sorry, more than six. Doing 10 sets per session maybe grows a little bit more than eight for a short time. Doing 12 sets per session for many people grows a little less muscle than doing 10 sets per session, and 14 even less, so on and so forth. So it's a, the U-shaped curve is very clear there. Um, so you'd think, okay, how do I solve this riddle and how do I get through these crazy high volumes? Well, if it's per session, and if you can recover from a session on time, the next session can be just as much volume. So sometimes people can recover relatively quickly between sessions, even if they can't do a ton of volume in a session and benefit. Now, the opposite consideration there is that while higher frequency, more sessions per week, short term causes more hypertrophy, it also causes so much systemic fatigue, so much joint and connective tissue fatigue, that it's not as sustainable. So you might be able to train your back twice a week for forever, three times a week for half the year, if you were going to maintain it, and then four times a week for maybe one mesocycle or two mesocycles at a time. So then you figure, how do I do both? Well, say you have a block of training, three mesocycles in a row, uh, and you choose a few exercises. You start with two sessions a week for back because you maybe just came off active rest or maintenance phase. You're really sensitive to hypertrophy. When you train your back with a good, decent amount of volume, somewhere between you know five and 10 sets per session, it gets sore, it gets pumped, and it takes a while for it to recover its performance and soreness. And then you can only really train it hard twice a week. After that meso, your back is really kind of used to training. In your next meso, you may be able to do three times a week for back. And you might be able to add in some exercises that are less systemically fatiguing, more pull downs, more dumbbell rows, less hardcore shit. And then in your last mesocycle before you take another active rest phase or maintenance phase, your third mesocycle of that block, you may be able to do something that's truly unsustainable longer than a meso and say, okay, four times a week back. Now, I know this is going to grow a ton of muscle, but it's also going to tear me to fucking bits. But that's okay because next meso after this, I take a huge break anyway and let everything heal and recover. So that's kind of an argument for a little bit of frequency periodization where people say, what's the optimal frequency for XYZ muscle group? And you're like, well, it depends on your degree of sustainability. It's kind of like, what's the, what's the most hours per week a human being can work uh, and still be okay? Well, it really kind of depends on how long of a time frame you're talking. If it's their entire life, on average, it's like 30, right? Because you got to integrate vacations and all this other stuff. Like if you had to work 30 hours a week, hypothetically, you would never have to have a vacation in some universe because it's like, whatever, I work like six hours a day, six days a week. Like it's not a big deal. Like who 
cares? Or five hours a day, six days a week. That's easy, right? But then if you say, okay, what if we really need people to work 100 hours a week? That means they can't do it, right? Because their MRV is 30. Well, like, well, for two weeks on a really important project, people work 100 hours all the time. Engineers do it. Lawyers do it. Computer scientists do it. But then they get a big break afterwards, right? So because we have to take active rests anyway, every now and again, our body accumulates fatigue. Uh, it makes sense for your maximum productivity to push things a little harder before that active rest. And then after active rest, you're in a position where your body's so resensitized to gains, you don't need to push hard to get these easy gains. So then uh, you have end up having this normal structure where you start out with lower frequencies and volumes and less difficult training and you incrementally go up and then up and then oh, our screen's really small, up and up and up. And then you drop it down and relax just like similar to a corporate structure in the workplace, you know, after a really big project is completed and submitted and the client buys it and everyone's cheering and champagne, you know, people take their vacations and go the fuck somewhere else, go to wherever Australia is, go to Bali or something like that. Right. And then after you get food poisoning in Bali for three weeks straight, you come back and uh, then, you know, the workplace is, you know, it's back to work. Right. But that's like formulation of a new contract or scoping out new possibilities. You know, it's normal work days, nothing crazy. And then you get a contract. Right. And then you start working a little bit more and really like, oh, you got to go business trip to Tokyo because we got to secure this facility. we got to make sure this, this treatment plan is operational, blah, blah, blah. And then when you're peaking towards the end of like really making the final big sale, final contract, final rocket launch, whatever it is you do at work, it's like 100 hour work days and or work week. And everyone knows that's unsustainable. Once you get the job done, you loop back into the cycle, similar for training as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, with regards to um, measuring and understanding progress, uh, so, if, you know, because a lot of people um, think of soreness as progress, but there's, after a while of training, there's not always soreness, or at least not to the same degree as, as when you first started. What are some other markers that people can use to know that they are progressing and they're progressing enough? Or they're progressing. They they're being a little bit too aggressive with their training, and they maybe need to back off. So, and what are some things that people can use as, as good general rules of thumb? Sure, I, I I don't think it's I don't think it's by accident that people have trouble getting sore when they're advanced and also grow less. I don't think that's an accident. Uh, people say soreness has nothing to do with growth, and I ask them, when do you get the most sore? They're like, when you're doing new stuff or when you're a beginner. Like, when do you grow the most? They're like, God damn it. Okay, so both of those definitely apply. So there is to some extent. So so I will say what soreness um, can tell you. Soreness can tell you essentially two extremes, and it's very important for those, but it can't tell you much middle ground. If you're not getting sore at all and your performance is good, like you're not incredibly fatigued and tired and beat up and can't incre incrementally increase your performance, then there's a chance that you're not doing enough, right? Like it, it's just pretty obvious. Like maybe you're just not doing enough. On the other hand, other end of the spectrum, if your soreness is debilitating and you, you're so sore that you can't train with a normal training frequency, like you train back twice a week, except your back got so sore on Monday that by Thursday, you're like can barely move and Friday, you're just barely healing, then there's a very good chance and there's direct, direct data on this that you've damaged yourself so much that you actually are healing more than you are growing and the recovery takes away from adaptation. That's problem number one. Problem number two is you can't get as many sessions in to stimulate hypertrophy, so that's another problem. Problem number three is that your performance suffers if you try to get as many sessions and then you're unable to overload. You know, you squat for five for reps one week, uh, early in the week, and then later in the week you're squatting through 15 for reps because you're so sore you can't put four or five on the bar. Well, how the fuck is, you know, four or five is growing you. How the hell is 315 going to grow you as much with the same reps? Like, it's just not happening. Or you can't even overload. So soreness shouldn't be chased. 
soreness should not be coveted. And it's absolutely false that as the, the more sore you can get, the better. But if your performance is really good and you feel like the training is easy and you're not getting sore, it's a pretty decent sign. Consideration for you to think, oh, maybe I can do more. And if you're getting wildly sore and barely recovering, for the love of fucking God, whatever you do, do not add volume. Do not add intensity. Do not add anything. Just try to keep that going and see if the soreness falls off. Or even if it's extreme soreness, do less because you might be better off doing less and growing more because you're really, really overdoing it. So that's how soreness works. But like you intimated, it's not that doesn't really leave us with a whole lot of like exact guidelines because a lot of times your performance could be like decent, maybe not so great, but you're also not getting sore as an advanced person. So we need more than that. I think for hypertrophy, pumps are a pretty good indication. I think if you're getting robust pumps, there's probably a lot going on with growth. And I could get into the science behind that, but unless you want me to do that, suffice it to say pumps are very well related to growth. Yeah, and tell us. So, so uh, cell swelling has been directly implicated as a hypertrophic pathway, first of all. Second of all, the kind of disruption and volume and proximity to failure that causes robust gains, shown in other studies, is a much higher likelihood of causing soreness, like, or sorry, causing a pump. They say like, okay, what kind of rep ranges grow you the best? Like oh, sets of like, you know, anywhere between like you know, five and let's say 30 reps. Like, okay, do you get decent pumps in those? Like, yeah, probably. Like, you know, sets of two don't give you a pump. Sets of 40 just make you tired, no pump. But those aren't the ones that grow you. So if you have a pump, you already think you're doing something there. What gives you a better pump? Getting close to failure or getting far from failure? Because we know far from failure doesn't grow much muscle. Close to failure does. Well, you get a huge pump getting close to failure. You get almost dick going far from failure. Metabolites are now experimentally validated to directly cause hypertrophy. How do you get a shitload of metabolites to sum up? You will get a pump doing that shit. You know, someone says, all you got to do is do cluster sets on the leg press and you'll get metabolites. So I, I challenge anyone here, summate a lot of metabolites without getting a pump. How the fuck are you going to do that, right? Can you imagine doing like, a set of 50 on the leg press, like 12 reps at a time with like three or four seconds break between and be like, ah, it didn't give me a pump. Like you won't be able to bend your legs, right? So the pump for all kinds of reasons probably correlates to a really good dose of hypertrophy. And you can use your pumps as a guide. Ultimately though, those are just proxies. Uh, and there's a couple other ones like performance loss of the target muscle. But at the end of the day, the best metric for growth, other than measuring the tissue somehow very directly, which isn't even that great because the reliability is not that good, or sorry, the, uh, the validity is not that good. Like you can get a DEXA scan, but the error rates, meh. Um, ultimately, it's strength progress over time in the repetition ranges, which correlate best hypertrophy, which is sets of five to 30 reps. So whatever rep ranges you're training, you have better be getting better at them. And you should be training a diversity of rep ranges and getting better at all of those in all the different exercises that you use. So for example, if your bench goes up, we can ask like, did your packs increase? Maybe you want to run bench went up. Like, did your pecs get bigger in size? Maybe, or maybe it was a neural or architectural or technical adaptation you made. But if you got in sets of dumbbell incline, barbell incline, barbell flat bench, weighted push-ups and dips, you managed to be able to do more load with the same reps as before or more reps with the same load. We asked, did your pecs get bigger? Probably. Because everything your pecs are good at, they're doing better. It doesn't matter the exercise, they're doing better. Like technical adaptation doesn't describe why you're getting better at exercises you're not even training, you know? So lastly, how do you judge performance? Well, there's a problem called the fitness fatigue paradigm. And that's anytime you train in an accumulation part of a mesocycle, you actually can't tell how much ability, how much fitness you're gaining at the time. Why? Because fitness always comes with some concomitant amount of fatigue. If I train you really hard, you could get no stronger for reps for three weeks straight because your fitness has been increasing really fast 
but so is your fatigue at exactly the same level, right? And that way you could be like, oh my God, I'm fucking treading water here. We deload you, the fitness stays, the fatigue drops a ton. And then after the deload, you hit a fucking radical PR. And you're like, holy shit. Like I'm the strongest I've ever been. I must have grown a lot of muscle this last week. It wasn't this fucking last week. Sure, you grew some too. But it was you growing muscle the entire time. And the fatigue was just making you not see it. So we got to be really, really careful about saying, okay, performance is number one for hypertrophy. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to hit as many PRs within that accumulation phase as I can. Well, if you do that. The best way to do that is a peaking program. You do like six sets on week one, three sets on week two, and in week three, you do one set. And then week, last week, you just don't even train. You just perform a PR. You're like, oh my God, I gained so much strength. Gained. What you really did was you optimized your neural expressive abilities. Your fitness is roughly the same. Because your fatigue fell that entire time. It's a tapering program. So what we really need to do is understand that it's okay to gain uh, visible preparedness, the ability to do something, hit PRs within a mesocycle, but that should be in the context of also pounding in some pretty decent volume. You definitely want to end a mesocycle when you're no longer gaining any strength or your strength starts to fall off. That's for sure over. But you can't evaluate the results until you deload and then see how you're doing afterwards. So the real, real critical variable of assessing progress in hypertrophy training is what is your rep strength like meso to meso to meso to meso like are you stronger now than you were three months ago and six months ago and if the answer is definitely by a long shot in every rep range you're probably gaining muscle if the answer is like well i don't know well the answer to, to whether or not you gain muscle is i don't know and if your answer is well i don't think i've been getting stronger at all gee i wouldn't bet any money on you having gained muscle yeah yeah that must uh, that totally makes sense in regards to the uh, the soreness because you're absolutely right. Uh, anytime you you have a good solid training block where you see gains and you feel amazing and and you're like, man, that was a that was a fucking good good block of training. It's always associated with a constant feeling of just soreness, which which you actually enjoy. You're like, man, I'm like that good sore, you know? I did uh, something. Feel like you did something. Yeah, exactly. Feel like you did something. And, um, uh, yeah, it just doesn't, doesn't have to be a debilitating level of soreness where you just, um, you know, it's too much because by the time your body's now spending time on just recovering by the time the next session comes around and you're just starting back at where you were or even lower and, uh, and you don't want to do that. So you need to find that sweet spot. And as long as you're finding that you're getting, um, you're getting rep strength up, uh, as you say it. Uh, with with weights with decent volume uh, without having to do like a sort of like a taper or a peaking style of uh, in your program then you know that there's more muscle being laid down sure there's still central nervous system adaptations there's improvement in movement um, quality and stuff like that but we, the the difference here is that the, the volume is still high and you're still performing with higher volumes so you're you're likely laying down uh, new muscle fibers and, and stuff like that how does somebody increase and improve their MRV? So whether it's a strength athlete or whether it's somebody who's who wants to be a bodybuilder or just just you know get bigger, uh, how can they in, increase the amount of volume that they can do? Because we know that in general, more volume is better to do, uh, but some people don't have the recovery capabilities uh, to be able to handle more volume. So how can you go about improving that and increasing your? Yeah. You really kind of, you actually kind of kind of gave the answer a little bit. So there's actually two ways to improve your MRV fundamentally. One is improving the muscle's ability to do more work directly through muscular adaptations. 
The other is improving your ability to recover. Now, through usually through things external to the muscle. The big problem with option number one is that when you improve the muscle's inherent ability to perform work um, and recover quickly from its own uh, abilities, that essentially means you're converting it into a more slow twitch fiber expressive variant, more type one. Uh, uh, and then that's in, in, the way that happens is actually through the AMPK pathway, which is also catabolic. Okay, so you're turning more into an endurance runner. You want to see guys that can handle weight training volume that would murder anyone? Go to marathon runners. I mean, marathon runners, I've done this. I used to train uh, high-level 5,000, 10,000 meter runners back in college. You can do, they can do a set of 10 in the squat to failure, rack it and go, what's next? And you're like, what the fuck? And you can do like 10 by 10. In, to failure in the squat or close and then they come back the next day and they're like do 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 ready to train and you're like you're sore and they're like a little and you're like what you're gonna get more sore and then they come in the day after and you're like so you're fucked up now they're like, oh, completely recovered and you're like what the fuck you're supposed to be dead like we don't want to be like them though right because they have to do an infinite amount of work to get almost no results because they're super slow twitch so their mrvs are insane but we don't want to be there and the people with the you probably you've coached enough really good athletes to see this the best athletes in powerlifting and in hypertrophy are fast twitch athletes they're the ones with dog shit mrvs Right, they do like three sets of flies, and they're like, ah, 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 my pecs are cramping, and they're fucking super pumped, and they're gonna be sore for five days. Those are the guys who make huge jumps because their muscles are faster twitch, and that they just work better like that, right? So we want to make sure we avoid any kind of MRV increases that come at the expense of our muscles' ability to adapt, which means training volume for its own sake, ramping up volumes beyond the point of which you're getting sore and using all those other regulators. Bad idea. Uh, endurance work, terrible idea. People will say like, man, my legs used to never recover from squat workouts, but I picked up like jogging and now they recover from anything. I'm like good news, bad news. Your legs are not growing nearly as much. Okay. So the last thing you want to do is start jogging if you want huge legs. But to answer your question, and you sort of started this answer already, you can improve recovery ability. So good reason to have a low MRV is you're a fast twitch machine and your muscles suck at recovering. Bad reason to have a low MRV. You spend nights out, you don't eat enough food, and you're always stressed. So increasing the amount of sleep, increasing the intelligence of your training program, increasing uh, the food that you're eating and the quality of the food you're eating, taking the right supplements, which is minor, unless you're talking about special sports supplements and then it's major, right? And then managing stress super well, all of that can increase your MRV, but it without touching the adaptive ability of the muscles. So now not only is so here, here's minimum effective volume, here's maximum recovery when you got this sort of like U-shaped-ish curve, this curve spreads now without lowering how much volume. So it doesn't spread by getting thinned out, which is what the endurance runners are. Like, yeah, their MRV is down here and their MRV is like, why the fuck out there? But like at any point of volume, they get almost no gains. What you want is that, that MAV, the maximum adaptive volumes to give you tons of gains, but you want it to also be spread out. And that's what things like getting sleep, getting good nutrition, so on and so forth. That's what they allow you to do. And that's really number one. And that's one of the reasons how come people who get good sleep and good nutrition, for example, and can recover better, that's how come they grow better is because they can consistently put in very highly adaptive volumes, volumes that cause growth and still recover from them and still come back next time and still do it again versus people who are endurance runners that can do that, but they get almost no gains every time they come in. We definitely don't want that perspective. Are there different volume landmarks for, um, for 
for hypertrophy training versus strength training and uh yeah take us through that absolutely and that's that's our concern when you're trying to do very hybrid programming is you're actually trying to do two things that are not ideally tailored to one another so for strength training you're um you want a really high degree of preparedness because the training is so hard and the lifts are so much closer to limits. So you don't want a lot of accumulated fatigue. And in hypertrophy training, to get the best possible results for the muscles, you're going to train in such a way that's not optimal for your nervous system's preparedness and ability to recruit them. It's just not. Like, uh, imagine trying to train endurance and strength at the same time. You'd be like, okay, if you want the best endurance, you're going to have to do the snatch 100 times. If you want the best strength, you're going to have to do it once, right? That's kind of a shitty trade-off. In hypertrophy, there is a similar trade-off, which is where, you know, um, multiple sets, you know, five to 10 sets of an average sort of 12 reps or something is kind of the best for hypertrophy. In strength, the repetitions are much lower, sort of three to six. And the number of sets per session is probably lower too. More like, I would say, if hypertrophy has a range of optimality between four and 12 sets. Uh, strength has a range probably between two and six sets per muscle group per session, right? Um, I mean, if think about it like this, like when a guy is fucking strong and he's doing hard, like RP seven plus sets of three to six in the high bar squat, how many fucking sets is he gonna do in a session you can really consider strength work? Two to six. As people say two, that's crazy. Well, there's tons of top guys who are fucking enormous who do two fucking working sets. Like, and then they leave, right? Like for guys in the super heavyweight class, two sets of five is like fucking unbelievable amount of effort. And then do hamstrings and then they go home. <laughs> and then the best way to do that is to maybe do that twice a week, but you can do it twice a week and you come back and come back and come back. Uh, one, I suppose, big message for, for your podcast here is if you think you're strength training and you're doing like 10 working sets per session, you just need to do more sessions because then the higher the higher quality of the sets on average will be much better. I'd much rather have you bench 200 kilos for five sets on average than you bench 170 for 10 sets on average because you have to go down to like 150 kilos after you're done benching 200 because you're too fucking tired. And another question you can ask yourself is, okay, 200 kilos for sets of five is really what challenges my strength. When I'm benching 150 kilos later, what the fuck am I challenging? You say, okay, hypertrophy, sure, but now you're mixing modalities. Like, is 150 kilos in your hands really making you stronger? Like, in the proximate sense of your nervous system becoming better at using your muscles? No, it's just too light. So, kind of a self auto regulation thing in strength training is when you drop below some absolute load, and I can give you numbers if you'd like, really, it's for an average of 75%. But if you're a more elite athlete, it's even as high as 80%. Because long, when you go below 80%, uh, let's say 75% to be charitable, 75% of your 1RM, it doesn't matter what sets and reps you're doing. It's just not a good idea anymore because you're not training not strength anymore. You're too weak to train for strength. And if you're really strong, there's only so many number of sets, as you are very strong, you very know. I mean, how many sets of deadlifts above 80% can you do that are 8 or 9 RPE in a session until you're not above 80% 1RM? Yeah, you're not going to get much in. Yeah, maybe six, but six would be really yeah. impressive. Can you imagine somebody yeah. in the gym yeah, six hard work yeah. through? Holy fuck! That's the <laughs> that's top end, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's definitely the top end. Um, how does uh, how does in your view hypertrophy relate to to strength? How do they uh, how do they relate? How do they influence each other? Oh, yeah, well, in both ways, I guess. Yeah, this way and that way. So, training for strength doesn't help you with hypertrophy a lot unless you're a beginner. 
but it can provide you with low volume training that resensitizes you to high volumes. So it's okay, but it's not some kind of really big thing. Training for hypertrophy can make you much stronger because it adds muscle. The thing is, the more advanced of an athlete you are, the more specific your skill set is and the longer it takes you to get really into your groove. So if you do sets of five to 10 for hypertrophy and you do a one rep max after, if you're a beginner, your one rep max is going to go up because the sheer amount of muscle mass you added and the sheer shittiness of your nervous system at recruiting your abilities anyway sucks. So it's, you're going to be able to get a PR. When you're intermediate, when you're advanced, sets of five to 10 right after that because of the accumulated fatigue and the completely different neural patterning that occurs with recruiting your muscles, you're actually going to be weaker, right? So you have to retrain your body through phase potentiation to be strong again. So if you want to increase your one rep max, the way you have to do hypertrophy training is you spend a few months doing sets of mostly five to 10 to get bigger muscles. And of course you have to eat up to it as well. Then you spend a, a few months doing sets of three to six to take that new muscle and, and regain basic strength and regain and gain some more because you have new muscle. And then once you're done with your basic strength phase of three to six, now you can start doing a peaking phase where you do lots of sets of one to three um, peppered with technique work. And all of a sudden you're really showing off all that muscle. So it's almost like, you know, if you're trying to make a bigger skyscraper, hypertrophy work is kind of like working on the base. Uh, if your skyscraper is a certain height, starting construction on the base annoys the living fuck out of all the people working in their offices and doesn't make the skyscraper any more productive. And like, I used to have a parking garage. Now there's a fucking mound of sand in there. That sucks. That if you expand the base and then you fix up the skyscraper and you add some more layers to it, add an extra elevator shaft, add an extra building on the side because the base is bigger, that takes time. But now you have this huge capacity. And then if you want to put a spire on top of it and have the biggest antenna ever, you now can because you can have a triple spire because you have more buildings to build it on. And that's the peaking phase. And a lot of people miss that. And a lot of people, this is kind of a sad thing I've seen in powerlifting for as long as I've been chatting with people about powerlifting, coaching, and have been involved in it, is they'll say, oh man, reps, they don't work for me. And I'm like, oh, right on. How do you know that? And they're like, well, I did like three weeks of tricep extensions, my triceps grew, and then my bench went down. I'm like, what do you think about cumulative fatigue and neural adaptations? They're like, what's that? I'm like, God damn it. Like, <laughs> it's like taking your car to the shop taking the tires off to replace them, getting into the car while it doesn't have tires, trying to ride it and be like, oh my God, the shop is terrible for my car. They fucking took the tires off. No shit, they're gonna fucking replace them. So what you have to do is put some time into the hypertrophy work, then take your new big muscles, teach them to be strong again, sets of three to six, and then peak them. And then you'll be a fucking stud and you're like, holy shit, where'd all these PRs come from? And it'll be pretty obvious. Yeah, in my experience, and this is anecdotal, over the over the last ten years of of dealing with strength athletes, uh, and I said this in in another podcast just recently. Um, anybody who walked in through the doors, who eventually went on to uh, break a record, or win a world championship or national championship, they either came from a bodybuilding style background, meaning not comp- competition, meaning they took a lot of they spent a lot of time in the gym just building their body. They had a really solid physique when they walked in through the door. And then they they began their powerlifting career. Or maybe they didn't have that physique when they walked in, but they listened to advice and they they took a lot of time building that physique. Then when they went to uh, the strength sports and they became more um, specific in that and specialized in it, they almost always, every single person goes on to um, 
achieve higher things in that sport. And I think what's missing in uh, the younger generation coming into the sport now, any strength sport, but especially powerlifting, is that they just want to start putting weight on the bar right now. And, you know, you got guys that are, um, you know, six foot tall, uh, but weigh like um, 170 pounds, you know, yeah, 160 pounds. Kilos. Yeah, yeah, 65, <laughs> 70 kilos. And, and they're just trying every little trick. They're trying to figure out how to get a better hook grip technique to get their deadlift to grow. They're trying to figure out if their shins should be 37.5 degrees yes. pointed outwards, if that's a better biomechanics. And you're like, man, you're missing the point so much. Because even if that um, hook grip technique that you're looking at or that shin angle that you're trying to hack, even if you, even if it does work for you, it's going to get you another couple of kilos, a few more pounds. And then how long is that going to go for? That's not going to get you what you want. What you want is another 100 kilos on your deadlift, you know? You think that's going to do it? So I think they're missing a lot, uh, a lot in that regard. I, I can't agree with you more. It's kind of like putting a really advanced optics gun sight on like like a BB gun. You're like, oh, man, I'm really going to maybe shoot people with this. Like, you know, shit, you're shooting BBs, motherfucker. What you need is a cannon. you got to go back to the factory and reform that cannon. You're not going to be shooting anything for a while because you'll be building, busy building the cannon. And it's funny that you say like some of the guys are jacked already. And this is like, I've always wondered about how to, because it's tough to convince these young folks, right? And and it's not like this generation, every generation wants to fucking gains now. Like every generation comes uncivilized, right? Has to be civilized. Um, how do we get to them? One thing to say to them potentially is like, who's your favorite lifter? And they're like, well, so-and-so be like, does he look like you? Be like, no, he's jacked. Be like, but you want to be like him, right? Like, yeah. As you think doing hook grip singles, trying to experiment with your shrimp position is going to get you jacked? They're like, maybe not like uh -huh, okay so why doesn't that lifter train to get jacked they're like because he's already jacked like holy fucking einstein right like he does doubles and singles all the time yes because he's already jacked once you're jacked you can do doubles and singles all the time too motherfucker and uh sometimes they're like oh i guess right it's just like you gotta look like what you gotta look like you know like you know uh all those guys out there like kevin oak and dan green and all this they, they don't look like skinny guys they just have these weird leverages like and, and the thing is also Another thing that pisses me off on that tangent is people will bring up some folks, like the rare guys who are sort of skinny or sort of not as muscular looking, and, and they are amazing. And they're like, well, that guy, like, you're not that guy. You're yeah. not. You're never going to be that guy. But, you know, Usain Bolt eats McDonald's and then breaks the 100-meter record. Go ahead, eat some McDonald's. I'll time your dumb ass. Run the 100 meters. Oh, shit, you didn't do it. How the weird, you know? Like, don't use exceptions as rules. It's absurd, you know? Like, yeah, it's crazy. Those guys were strong for no reason to begin with, and you're not strong for no reason. Like, yeah. The it, the evidence is is in front of you. If you line up all the all the weight the people in one weight class against the wall, why do we have weight and, classes? <laughs> yes, exactly. And you just look at them and you see which one is the champion. It's pretty much always the jack guy. It's the shortest, biggest guy, and uh, even the top five performers in that weight class. You know the the skinny guys that aren't built in that weight class that are too tall for that weight class. They are not usually the performers. You get one outlier, one percent, uh, even less than one percent, who is a tall, lanky dude and he's got a big deadlift. But usually, that guy's just got a, like a big deadlift. He doesn't have a big deadlift and a big bench and a big squat. It's it's one thing that he's built for leverage-wise, you know, or he's got a big bench and then sucks at the other ones. So, I mean, the evidence is is there, but uh, a lot of times, it does. And a lot of times, what what will happen is. 
guys will look at only the top folks and they'll compare the top folks to each other, like the top 10 lifters. And they'll say, you know, in the top 10 squatters, it's not clear to me that the guys with the biggest legs are number one and two. Sometimes they're four and five and guys with just regular legs are number one and two. And I'm like, that's true. But how big are the guys with the regular legs? And they're like, right. They're fucking enormous. Like, sure, being the most jacked guy out of the top 10 might not result in victory because other factors matter. But the least jacked guy in the top 10 is the most jacked guy you've ever seen at your gym. And you're not that guy yet. And you're 50 kilos of muscle away from that guy. Like, six foot two guy at uh, 65 kilos, there's never been a champion of your build. There hasn't. So I don't know what you're working on with your hook, grip, shin, bullshit, deadlift, but you better be working on eating and doing reps so that you can actually look like a champion. Like if you don't think you fit in, you probably don't. Hundred fucking percent, man. Hundred percent. Um, oh, just real quickly, oh, what can you uh, tell me about? Um, obviously, there's so many different ways to to train, um, especially for hypertrophy. Um, what about um, a lot of bodybuilders, especially like a lot of the greats uh, who used to train um, sort of high intensity training, but they would just do one set, maybe two to failure, and they'll get just get amazing results. Um, like Dorian Yates, I think he used to train like that, right? Um, and a couple of the others. What is there something missing from the narrative there uh, that's not being told? Uh, is what's going on, or is that, or is that just because they're just freaks and that works for them? And because it's it's sort of akin to what you were saying before. Some people who are like really fast twitch fibers, they do three sets of flies and they're just cramping. You know, is it the same sort of thing? But these guys are just those freakish standouts genetically, and that just works for them. And that's they're not people to study for the rest of us. That's a really good point. So the first point is absolutely on the mark. The biggest bodybuilders in the world tend to be the most fast twitch individuals in the world, the same group. And uh, they predictably get unbelievably strong, which means they can throughput a shitload of tension in just one set. And also the recovery ability internally in the muscle is low because their growth capacity is so high and they're so not slow twitch that for them, because they're incredibly strong, because they've been training for forever, they have very good mind-muscle connection, and their technique is such that it can expose the muscle to a ton of tension. For them, number of sets they have to do to grow optimally and what they can recover from is just way lower than it is for the average person. You'd be like, well, you know, so-and-so only needs two sets to grow. Yeah, but you're not so-and-so, motherfucker. You're going to have to do more sets than so-and-so because so-and-so is gifted as fuck. And when so-and-so squats, it's 800. You're squatting 150. You're not going to be fucking putting in 800 pounds by 10 worth of hypertrophic stimulus doing 150 for a set of 10. You're just not. And also you need more stimulus because you're just genetically not that guy. So that's factor number one. Factor number two is the actual volume these guys are doing uh, is a bit different than what they sometimes say. So what we hear about Dorian Yates is that he did one set. Okay. In reality, he did one very hard set. He did multiple warmups the tail end of the warmups was would technically be stimulative. His second to last set was usually quite hard, which we'd consider a stimulative set. And then he had one all set to failure and to beyond failure would do four straps and stuff like that. So that set kind of counts as just a regular set. It counts as more like one and a half regular sets. So now we're talking about two and a half sets he's actually doing per session, but that's part of the story. He does multiple exercises for the same muscle group in a single session. And so you say, well, how many? Well, like three to five exercises, maybe three to four most days. 
So now you take four exercises multiplied by two and a half effective sets, and that's 10 sets per session. So there's just no controversy there because it's all of a sudden he's exactly on the money of what everyone does. And sometimes on the very low volume end of things, he's doing what would equate to four hard sets. Well, four hard sets for an unbelievably enormous, super strong, super fast, which guy, and remember the volume hypertrophy spectrum starts at around two sets uh, and goes all the way to like 12 uh, per session. Look, four is well in the mix. And for a guy like that, super strong, super fast twitch, has his technique really, really settled to what really stimulates the muscle, knows how to push himself like crazy. He's a fucking psycho. For him, those four sets would be the equivalent hypertrophy of someone doing six sets or eight sets. Or maybe let's say six. So it's lower than the average, which may be eight, but it's still well in the mix. And maybe he prefers to be a little bit lower on the volume and a little bit higher on the relative intensity, how hard is pushing beyond failure, and higher on the uh, absolute intensity, how much load he has on the bar. It's an interesting trade-off. It's not maybe one that I would mimic because it has its downsides. Like Dorian Yates did become enormous training with relatively low volumes. Notice they're no longer very low. Um, and uh, he did that at the expense of having to use monster weights. And by the time he ended his career, he had torn like maybe half of the muscles in his body. Like literally, he was like a walking fucking like some shit was not attached where it was supposed to be. And uh, someone like Kevin Lavrone, who trained with higher volumes and more submaximally, he tore his pec and he had no other major injuries. He tore his tricep once, I think, minor tear. And he essentially trained and was just 100% fine and is currently like in his 50s or 60s and is still 100% fine. He's fucking yeah. healthy fundamentally. So it's kind of like, you know, which one do you want to be? Like, yeah, you know, Dorian, you want all those Olympias, but you know, basically like we have to look genetics for genetics. Like if you were Kevin Lavrone's coach in his prime, would you have Kevin go even heavier and even lower volume and push his body that much further? He may have never survived the process. He might have only competed in the Olympia twice instead of like the 12 times that he did or some shit. So it's one of those things where, yeah, those multiple factors explain the lower volumes of those, some of those guys, but those guys are in the minority. Most people do higher volumes and they're in a special set of circumstances. And uh, as I mentioned before, their apparent volumes are not nearly as low as they would seem because people, for some reason, count sets per exercise, but they forget that people do multiple exercises. When we say eight sets per session, we mean among all exercises done, total eight sets, right? That's very different than saying like, oh, I just do two sets per exercise, but I do four exercises. Like, well, fucking shit, you're in the same boat. That's eight sets. Yeah. Um, athletes, athletes who train, uh, who have to train, um, strength and hypertrophy and endurance elements. So uh, we know that there's there's a direct competition between some of the pathways, especially MPK and, and mTOR pathways. Um, and uh, from what I have have read and also anecdotal evidence, there tends to be more competition for the lower body musculature uh, when when those endurance endurance and and strength is done in close proximity to each other in terms of sessions less so for upper body what are some recommendations for say bjj athletes wrestlers um football players or whatnot uh who need to get stronger need to maybe even put on some size uh, on low body and upper body so do some weight sessions uh, but also need to uh, do their endurance work whether it's running road work or the actual uh, like sporting sessions, so the BJJ sessions. Uh, what are some ways they can mitigate that and, and, and sort of avoid avoid that inhibition, so to speak, as much as possible? Yeah, great question. Rule number one is don't exceed your total MRV, your systemic MRV, or the local muscular MRV from multiple sources. 
So if your wrestling gives you an ability to recover from eight sets of bicep training per week, whereas if you stop wrestling, you could recover from 20, don't pretend that when you're wrestling, your MRV is still 20. It's eight. Could you grow more if you wrestled less? Yes, but you can't wrestle less because you're a fucking wrestler, not a bicep trainer. <laughs> Can you imagine taking like third at a tournament? You're like, yeah, look at these guns. People are like, are you fucking stupid? <laughs> yes, actually. So, Five points. That's right. Five points for the biceps. Like what? That guy just beat me because of his biceps? Yep, we turned it into a bodybuilding contest. Sorry. So, uh, you know, I, I would do much better at, uh, at wrestling like that. But um, – so, so that's uh, something to realize is that when you have a limited training capacity for everything, make sure to squeeze in to those limits and don't try to squeeze around them because it doesn't fucking work. So don't just add stuff, squeeze it in. If you're doing a bit more strength training, do a bit less running and vice versa. So that's factor number one. Factor number two is try to spread them out in time and try to sneak and sequence them rationally. It is possible to have a very productive strength workout and then do a very productive endurance workout after. It is not possible to do the other way around. So if you have a really productive endurance workout, you ain't doing shit in the gym afterwards. So if you're someone who has to do both strength and endurance ability, you probably structure your day like you wake up, you do strength training, and then later you do endurance work. Um, you probably don't do endurance work first and then strength training after because you're going to be fucking toast. Um, interestingly enough, in something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, even if you really highly value your Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you're a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu athlete, not a lifter, lifting may is a good argument to have for lifting to occur before Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Spread as far out in the day as possible, but if it's all at the same time, before. Because you can still get really, really awesome at technique and not have to use all of your power, fatigued from lifting to go into Jiu-Jitsu. But after jujitsu, you are such a fucking mess. Lifting is basically fucking impossible. And I've tried it. Your joints hurt so much. You're just like, oh my God, and you're so tired. Fighting another human being is a level of fatigue you cannot experience with weights. It just doesn't happen. Um, and it's something that you have to sequence properly. And then lastly, my third tip. Uh, so one is mind your MRV and squeeze everything into it. Two is try to time things out to spread them out as much as possible and have performance-based timing where you know you can perform both and, and not have one fuck the other. The last one is that, how do I say this best? You start lifting for the first time or you start wrestling for the first time or you start doing road work for, for wrestling in, uh, uh, for the first time. You can just start doing small amounts of them and because it's such a novel stimulus, it causes not so much fatigue and unbelievable amount of stimulus. You could just get better. Like wrestlers who've never done road work before start running and their endurance goes up and their strength doesn't go down. And they're like, holy fuck, this is unbelievable. And then they get more advanced and they get as much out of that as they will. And what they realize is that no amount of lifting or wrestling and endurance combined can make them better at any one of those. So now it's time for face potentiation and prioritization to take a, a bigger role. Early in the off-season, what you might want to do is build some endurance doing non-wrestling activities like the elliptical or so on and so forth. While you do not as much lifting, some, and some wrestling, but not as much. Maybe working on the finer points of techniques. Later in the season or preseason before you start to have to wrestle, you might start to do a little bit less endurance because now your endurance is high enough that it's not limiting you in wrestling anymore. And what your strength is maybe something you want to bring up. So now you do a little bit more strength training and uh, hypertrophy work and stuff like that. Uh, less endurance just to maintain and a little bit more wrestling, right? And then as the season comes up or during the season, you might spend most of your time wrestling because you have to be good at wrestling now and put endurance work uh, and strength work at maintenance level volumes to just keep them through the season. Because you know that you can't, it takes so much to get better at any one 
that if you tried to do all three at their maximum, it would exceed your maximum recoverable volume. You just can't combine them all anymore. You have to do one at a time. And because you're doing them one at a time, not only is this fitting into your MRV, but the interference effect is much less. So when you're trying to get bigger and stronger in the gym, you're wrestling less and you're running less. So you can get bigger and stronger because a huge quintessential core tenet of sports science is it is much, much easier to conserve adaptations than it is to gain them. So you want to give yourself that edge, but when you want to gain adaptations, free up your plate, gain, gain, gain. And by just doing a minimum of the other things, they'll hang in there and then switch the script, go on the other thing you want to improve, gain, 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 minimizing the other two adaptations and rotate them like that. And over the long term, you'll get the best result of all. Because if you sort of do a minimum amount of all three, you may not be doing enough of any of them to actually get better at any of them. Yeah. And to find that MRV, like, you know, going back to the example you using, you were using with the biceps, um, doing bicep training as, uh, in conjunction with your BJJ, for example, whereas normally you can do 12 and, and recover and progress. Now you have to do eight. Um, obviously, that's a bit of a trial and error to begin with. You, you're making an educated ex uh, thought and uh, going with that and see how that works out. And also uh, for people listening and actually going to try that, obviously the progress is going to be slower. So they'll still make pro gains, correct? But it's just at a slower rate. Even in strength, they can still continue their squat, bench press, or deadlift training if they are you know, powerlifting enthusiasts recreationally and they just want to get stronger. But they also do are doing BJJ on the in conjunction, they'll get stronger at those, but now they have to expect that the, those gains are going to be much slower because there's resources being um, dedicated by the body to recovery from other modalities of work. And, and also the volume of work being done for the squat, for example, is just going to be much less. So progress is going to be slower. So th they got to adjust that expectation, correct? Super important to do that. And eventually they become so advanced that no amount of limited work is going to make them stronger. And they'll have to dedicate times where BJJ takes less of a priority and lifting takes more and vice versa. But that's going to happen only when you're pretty advanced. But intermediates do need to take that adjustment into account. It's very good that you brought that up, Amiri, because a lot of people will be like, man, I used to gain you know, my squat at XYZ rate and I started BJJ and it's less. And they literally, this is questions I get asked, like, how do I fix that? I'm like, there's no fixing it. Like, it's almost like saying like, I used to be able to eat uh, like a, 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 a giant bowl of pasta and I still have room for dessert. Now I'm eating a giant bowl of pasta and a giant bowl of rice, but I don't have room for dessert. How do I fix that? Like, fix what? Your stomach's full. <laughs> so like, it's just, there's only so much you're going to be able to do. And I think it's important to just do your best within the reality of constraints. And of course you can optimize, of course you can spread the sessions more in time. Of course you can get more sleep and eat more food and so on and so forth. But I think some people think that there's some kind of like synergistic clicking of a program that'll occur and they can just get all the squat gains they used to yeah. while somebody ragdolls them in the gym for eight hours a day. Like, you know, when your legs feel like total shit, cause people have been wrenching on them and you've been doing stand up and drills, it, there's, that fatigue, that that's chemical effects on your legs to prevent you from growing. Like, I'm sorry, there's no other way to put that. Like, people ask me, like, I've been asked before, like, does your BJJ interfere with your bodybuilding? Yes, fuck yes. Are you fucking kidding me? Huge interference, mm. right? And and vice versa. But like, that's the path I chose. It's you have to understand the trade offs because otherwise you end up looking for unicorns that don't exist. Sometimes shutting long or shutting out normal intelligent programming. You're like, yeah, I tried this like pretty good split, but I want the most out of all my training. You can't get that. That's impossible. Yeah, absolutely. For In regards to maintenance, 
as you mentioned, it takes much less to to maintain whatever, uh, whether it's endurance or hypertrophy or strength. Way less. Uh, 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 yes. So, is there like a general rule of thumb with uh, a percentage? So, you know, we know that, for example, with hypertrophy, you may be working at about twenty sets per week, but ten sets or or just below that even will probably maintain, right? So that's roughly fifty percent. Do you think 50% is a number to shoot for across the board or is it different or it's, how, so would, it's, it's, how would people be able to do that? Great, great question. These are all really good questions, man. Um, usually in my podcast, like, what is MRV? I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> So uh, um, there's a lot of heterogeneity. There's a lot of diversity between sports and, and various skills. So there's, a, there's some big differences. But if I had to paint a cross-sport average, I would say it's uh, much closer to one-third than it is one-half. And it may be even less. I don't want to step out on that limb too soon. I don't know if the training culture can accept it. One-third would be my like tentative. Like, I'm not going to say one-third is it. I'm going to say try one-third. Try one-third. Uh, I can almost guarantee you lose nothing with one-third. Let's put that to some examples. Let's say you're doing 15 hours of BJJ a week to get better, like you're trying to like win shit. If you do five hours of BJJ a week, you will not get worse. You will not get worse. You might even continue to get better. But to say that you get worse, oh my God, not even close, right? Let's say you're training with 15 sets per week in the squat to grow your legs. If you do five sets per week in the squat, are your legs going to get smaller? Smaller? You're training hard five sets. That means you do Tuesday, two hard sets. Thursday, two hard sets, and Saturday, one fucking mega hard set, you're going to lose muscle? How the fuck are you going to do that? Like, mm. there's no way, right? If in any other sport fits in exactly the same way, think about what guys can basically stay close to their max in the bench. How often do you have to bench? I mean, you take like three doubles twice a week, and your bench isn't going anywhere. Like, you just stay that strong. Mm-hmm. Again, are you losing weight? Are you not eating? That changes things. But if you're still eating normally, you're still the same weight, you're still healthy, it takes at most, in almost every sport, at most one-third of the weekly training volume typical in order to progress, which is super fucking cool, right, for a whole bunch of reasons. One of them is that if you really do put something on the back burner to keep it stable while you improve other things, you have so much room to play with. Because people say, okay, normally squat normally 15 sets of squats. I'm going to make room for jujitsu. I'm going to do 12 sets. No, 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 no. You can do 10 sets and you can do eight and you can do five. And holy shit, does that leave you open to do jujitsu? And it also prevents people from being paranoid from losing stuff. You know, like guys will, let's say, compete in jujitsu and and in like, uh, let's say powerlifting. And they'll say like, man, I got a jujitsu tournament coming up. I really want to do better. What do I do? I'm like, take your powerlifting down to like four sets of each lift per week. And they're like, what? Like for a month, like yes, and it just blast jujitsu. They do it, they win their tournament, they come back, and within the two weeks, they're hitting PRs again. And they're like, oh, okay. And they think it's going to be like months to regain. That just doesn't go anywhere. It does not go anywhere. The more advanced you are as an athlete, the harder it is for things to leave and the easier it is for them to come back. So if you've ever, like, you know, deadlifted 300 kilos and you back away from heavy deadlifts for a few months, if you've pulled over 300 kilos and it wasn't like a magic one-time event like if your max is 320 or 315 for you to get to pulling over 300 kilos again is like three sessions away of deadlifting and guys always think it's like oh my god it's going to take me years and that's just not true yeah yeah you're right um 
I mean, a third is is fantastic. You know, uh, a third yeah. anybody can do a third, and and th- you're you know that's being on the cautious side for you because you're saying maybe even less yeah, than less. that without absolutely um, getting people upset and angry about it. Uh, a third is is totally doable. It's totally um, uh, realistic. You know, because times come when when you do totally have to do that. Um, any any uh, plans for BJJ comps for you? Not for a while. I'm trying to really like uh, present a, a good showing on stage for bodybuilding. I'm trying to max out my bodybuilding in the next couple of years. So I'm training BJJ a lot, but I don't do super hard using all of my strength roles uh, very often because it tends to get you hurt and it just fatigues the yeah. fuck out of you. Um, so I'm going to keep it a little low on BJJ competitions, but in uh, you know probably about five to seven years here, I'm 36 in my early 40s. I'm going to retire from bodybuilding. Um, I'm going to slim down considerably, uh, lose a bunch of muscle, and I'm going to do BGJ full time. And that's just going to be for the soul, as they say in Russia. Uh, and uh, it's just going to be for fun. And I'm going to take it, you know, my idea for fun is taking it very seriously. Then I'll do BGJ all the time. And then I'll regularly compete at the master's level. Uh, and that'll be super fun. So for now, I'm kind of, uh, I'm still training and I'm still working on my technique and everything, but it's not a super competitive orientation because it's just going to interfere with bodybuilding too much, which is like the yeah. lamest thing. It's really, so really hard on the body. It's, it's crazy, man. Um, BJJ? Yeah. It's just, just Physical, all rolling, all grappling. It's just really hard on the body when, you, when you're going hard, when you're doing a hard roll, you know, it's, everything just hurts. It's What's hard that to, called? Like I know what it's called in Russian, but I don't know what's called in English. Where uh, ten- meat tenderizing, you know, like yeah. when they take chicken breast yeah. and they beat it with the, the culinary hammer. If someone ever asked me, like, what does BJJ do to your body? I'm like, yeah, that. yeah. It's not an analogy because someone's actually doing that to you. <laughs> like, oh, I see. It is, man. And and you know, like you said, uh, hard rolls you can you can get injured, um, and you don't want to do that, especially when your training's going so well. You're on a you're on a fucking roll. Um, because you're you're not doing it. Are you doing any uh, lectures still right now? Uh, now that you've moved over, what are you doing? What what even prompted the move? Uh, so um, we're just here for a year. My wife is a medical fellow. It's the last part of her medical education. It's optional. I, mean, I guess all the shit is optional, but you don't have to do a residency actually or a fellowship. She did both. Of course, she's Asian and she has to overachieve. Otherwise, you know, whatever. Insert favorite Asian joke here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, she's doing a fellowship, which means that we're and that her fellowship is in Las Vegas. So that's sort of just followed her. Um, and I wasn't uh, a professor for four or five years now, but. Brad Schoenfeld, goddammit, lured me back in. Right. So I will be an online instructor, uh, a professor, actually. I get to call myself a professor again. Online, uh, I'm teaching an online class, uh, advanced something, or I can pull up class up, uh, advanced strength conditioning practical practices, um, and or like advanced strength and hypertrophy training, essentially, at Lehman College in the Bronx. And I, I posted that on Instagram, but it wasn't specific enough, I guess, about the online thing. But like with COVID-19, I thought people would make that assumption. And one guy's like, oh, the Bronx, we're going to be neighbors. I'm like, no, we're not. I'm not moving to the Bronx. <laughs> Arguably ever. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I guess I'm getting back into the academia. But that's just going to be, I think, like a once a year, once a semester type of thing for a while until okay. I do a bad job and Brad fires me. <laughs> how can people um find out more about that and, and enroll if they if they want to and what's covered yeah, look up. yeah right so the the p that's a master's program all about strength and hypertrophy like muscle 
Like that's all we learn about is how to get jacked and strong and understand training and the mechanisms and at a deep level. So it's like meathead, meathead masters is really what it is. And that's at Lehman College, L-E-H-M-A-N. Um, and just uh, Google Schoenfeld Lehman Masters, maybe strength or hypertrophy, but Schoenfeld Lehman, Ma- Lehman Masters is going to be good enough. And there's going to be the page that pops up of like, like here's how to apply. And you can message the, uh, the folks in charge. And there's Brad and a couple other people, um, administrative folks, if you're unsure about like what credentials you need to have and pricing and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, I've got tons of info that's similar for free online that I put out, but that doesn't get you credentialed. Uh, master's is more rigorous and you have to actually prove yourself and you're expected to do a research project and be creative and pass tests. But afterwards you, you get a master's degree. Uh, and uh, it's currently, I don't know if it's all online. There's currently a lot of it's online anyway, but uh, it's certainly something to look into if you have a real passion for this kind of stuff and you really want to take your education to the next level, um, then that's the place to be. And for at least uh, one semester, I'll be a professor. I'll be one of your teachers, which just you know, sucks for you, but <laughs> Brad Brad Schoenfeld's uh, really good at at um, that branch of things. He's always putting out good good info. Um, yeah, he's he's for real, and it's good that you know you guys are both doing doing it together, teaming up. Um, it's good to see like a lot of these things. A lot of a lot of the people who are actually out there sort of in the trenches, so to speak, are actually doing and, and running these courses now instead of just like uh, just some old professor who's who's never lifted in their life and just uh, has gathered some some studies and data together, which was the case when I was at uni. I mean, I still learned a lot. That's fine. But there's, there's a lot of, lot of the stuff that questions you've got, you know, things that you can actually apply in real life to, to cross over that, that gap. And that's, that's really yeah. good. That's, uh, you know, that's very well stated. You know, at some point, like it used to be that like they taught you the academic side and it was up to you to bridge the gap by yourself, which is okay. Challenge accepted. Right. But you know, it's hardly the best education nowadays. Some of these programs, including Brad's many or most of the professors are folks that have walked the walk as well as talk the talk and they start to bridge the gap for you. So basically you have someone like Brad teaching. Brad has been a, a personal trainer. He had a whole career in personal training for a fucking generation before he ever went into academia. And he's been a, a competitive bodybuilder for years and years and years. And so like when he says a hard set, he knows exactly what he's talking about. When he says squat, when he says full range of motion, when he says anything, he's not like, you know, oh, theoretically, like the shit is real as shit to him. And then to me, I, I live it every fucking day. You know what I mean? And it's, you know, one of those where I think it's kind of cool to have professors that are like, you know, have lived it or live it currently or have tons of client experience and so on and so forth because they're never going to say anything that you're like, yeah, that works in theory, but like I would love for a student and I honestly mean this, I'm not being sarcastic because I, I really like students that push back. I would love for a student to be like, well, that work in theory, but like, motherfucker, what you mean, but, but what we do it, we're out here doing it every day. It works in real life. And I would, I would hate to learn something from a professor that only works in theory, misapplied and doesn't work in real life. But again, that whole course and Brad Schoenfeld and I's big philosophy is that we're just not interested in things that don't work in real life because we're trying to use science as a tool to discover what actually makes people stronger, more jacked, et cetera. We're not there doing laboratory studies and doing educational courses just for our own edification. We're, we're trying to figure shit out. So everyone can become more jacked and strong. Uh, and like I would say, so that they can find uh, happiness without having to reach out to other people and have any friends. Cause friends, you know, Amir, they let you down. You know that, you know all about that. I've let you down. Absolutely. Fuck friends. Exactly. And some of them that are attractive, that's a good policy in another life. <laughs> what's the, uh, what's the feature with, um, 
with RP, man, everything's going uh, really good there. You guys are doing good work. Um, apps doing good. Uh, any any plans there? What's happening? Yeah, it's all kind of shit, man. You know, it's uh, company internal politics. We all tell, tell hatred. We're all baring teeth. Just imagine, you know, you know the uh, the breed of dog, the miniature dachshund. You know what that is? No, what's that? So like a hot dog dog, a wiener dog. Oh yeah, that you ones. Yeah, like yeah. You, you try to come up to it and it goes, and you try to come up closer. Like, like that's <laughs> what it's like between RP employees right now, right? So it's real bad blood. So fantastic um, company culture then. Okay. <laughs> so we try to promote that kind of animosity towards yeah. each other. Um, no, on a serious note, uh, things are going super swell with that. And we've got the diet app. It's always being improved. We have a whole staff of software engineers working on that literally around the clock. Uh, I think they sleep. I don't know what, what's up with them. They don't, they're, you know, software engineers, they're their own people. People, they're pretty sure they're robots. Yeah. Um, and then we're working on other kinds of apps. Uh, hint, hint, wink, wink. Can't talk about that much. And all kinds of new digital products. And we're always trying to improve. That's where I spend most of my time is is working on digital products. Um, the hypertrophy book is currently in final phases of editing. It'll be out uh, later this year, towards the end of the year. Um, make the graphs and charts nice and pretty, and uh, put the you know dot the uh, I's and cross the T's. And then uh, sort of that's our plan for a while. So and then and also, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, we're really trying to. Um, so we had this uh, thing called RP Plus, which we're still going to have uh, sort of on, on the books. And it was like a bunch of uh, primarily videos, lecture length videos of entire courses of sports science. Um, and it was pay site. It was like ten dollars a month. We decided it's better to just give that shit out for free. So we're transferring all the videos slowly from RP Plus onto YouTube, and we're making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new YouTube videos to just give people the ins and outs of strength and, and hypertrophy and all this other stuff. So our YouTube channel, I think we like doubled. Yeah, we have like almost 90K right now. We started at 45K in March, so we doubled our subscriber base in like four months or something like that. Um, off the back and of doing like that, Say it again? Off the back of doing that, off the back of putting the videos on on youtube yeah so like actually just getting new videos up that aren't rp plus because we're but and we're putting the old rp plus videos up old is in the sense they're like two or three years old all the information is still valid it's just like tons of really cool courses so we're just flooding youtube with just great shit and i hopefully this promise can be met but like we're not we're not going to do clickbait bullshit like yeah we so we title it and we put the um what's that called the uh, the thumbnails we do all this stupid youtube clickbait shit just to get people to click on it we don't lie we're just like hey there's pretty colors and like failure are you doing it wrong some dumb shit but the actual quality of the videos the actual information is never going to be clickbait garbage it's always going to be high quality shit because we're out there trying to convince people um and educate people and help people find out how to fucking waste their time less and train better we're not going to do that like you know i'm not going to say who who it is but there's multiple people in the youtube fitness space they're just i don't know if they know but it's just pure straight up garbage and we're not we're not interested in going that route so we're just going to be uh putting out high quality shit and that if you're interested in uh strength hypertrophy whatever get onto renaissance periodization youtube rp strength on youtube and it's going to be some good stuff man and i'm like i'm shitty on video as you can clearly tell uh, so it's really disappointing you get to see my face. I blab a lot. People have told me that I look like a thumb, like a human thumb, <laughs> uh, like that. Uh, it makes sense. I actually like, oh, there it is. Right? Uh, you know, I ran out of neck. And actually in jiu-jitsu, it's hilarious. People try to certain chokes on me. And we both look at each other and we start laughing because they're like, you don't have a neck. What the fuck? Like, it helps. Uh, as I like to say, thick necks cast checks. Exactly. Especially when you're like a mafia enforcer and you take other people's checks out of their hands with your thick exactly. neck. Exactly. You cash them. Um, 
With yeah, with regards to the videos, um, and the the RP stuff, any anything up here really, um, always good good content. So uh, we always direct anybody who asks anything and they want to get more in depth knowledge and information about anything to them. So keep those coming. Um, Thank you. And uh, I won't take take up much more of your time. Thanks a lot for for joining me and giving giving up your time. Just quickly before I forget, I promised I would do this. Uh, uh, one of the one of the girls here, Ellie, she wanted me to give a give a shout out to you. Uh, she specifically mentioned to say that she is a fellow Jew, so I guess that means something. Uh, yes. What up, fam? Tell us about family. <laughs> oh well. But shalom. Yeah, man, tell us that shalom, bro. <laughs> I will. I will. Uh, thanks a lot for your time, Micah. It's always always a pleasure, man. Um, keep keep doing what you're doing. Keep putting out those videos, and um, yeah, hopefully another episode sometime soon. Let me know. Thanks so much for having me. So there you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed that one. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes, and rate and share the podcast so we can get it out there as quickly as possible to as many people as possible. Any feedback is always appreciated. Send it through to Amir at adonisathletics.com.au or you can add me on Instagram, the underscore sport performance coach. And looking forward to catching you guys on the next episode.